0: good to see you guys again this morning. Um, If you're one of our guests this morning or first time in a long time, we're actually a few weeks into a series. Uh, We started on the life of Jesus Christ from eternity past all the way to eternity still future. And so bottom line of it that is we've been saying that Uh, pretty much anyone that you talk to uh, on the streets or wherever it may be is going to have some sort of affection uh, or respect for Jesus. There's just not going to be a whole lot of agreement about who he is. And so if you engage with an average stranger on the street, you may have a conversation. They're going to tell you, hey, Jesus is really awesome. We like him, respect him. and He's great. Uh, They're just not going to worship him necessarily as God. They're going to say he's a great teacher. He's going to say he was an enlightened master. He may be the spirit child of the father or the brother of Lucifer, or he may be a created being by the father father like an angel. He may be a prophet like the Muslims say, one of a million different gods like Hindus say. Uh, he may even be the son of God, but people may be uh, taking that and saying he's the son of God in the same way that you and I have been given the right to be called children of God. And so bottom line, like there's a lot of respect and, and uh, affirmation of Jesus out there. There's just not a whole lot of agreement about who he really is. And so as followers of Jesus Christ, I thought it'd be very, very helpful that we make sure that we know who it is that we are Following uh, The goal of this series that we've been saying is essentially very, very simple. It's psalm 27, 4. It's a psalm where the psalmist cries out and he says, One thing I've asked of the Lord that I shall seek is that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of his life and simply to behold his beauty and to be able to meditate in his temple. Church, that is our heart and our desire for this series, is that we would go along and take this entire year to focus intently upon the life of Jesus Christ, that we'd be able to behold his beauty, the fullness of his glory just a little bit more today uh, than we did before. And so that's what we're going to be doing, all of his teaching, all of his parables, all of his encounters, and, and all of his purposes for coming uh, over the course of this next year. Uh, this morning, we're going to pick it up in Luke chapter 2, verse 39. So if you have your Bibles want to go ahead and turn there, you can do that. Uh, if you don't, I will be putting some of these passages up on the screen. Uh, we're going to be passing forward, uh, we're going to be kind of skipping past the, the infancy days of Jesus. We deal with that a lot at Advent season, every, every single Christmas. And so we're going to skip past that and we're going to get into preteen Jesus, the only time that we see what Jesus was like um, as a preteenager, specifically when he's 12 years old. And now real quick, I don't know if you guys remember 12 years old. Do you guys have any teenagers, preteens, or maybe you're not that far removed, or maybe you're really far removed, but you got grandkids and you're kind of going, like this is a fun age, right? Uh, Some people say fun, some people say cursed age, right? I think it's a fun age. I, um, Back in the day, I was a counselor at Pine Cove, and I worked with 12-year-olds and eighth-graders all the time. I absolutely loved that that age group. Uh, They're a rambunctious group that's always just doing odd things that kind of make you laugh a little bit. Uh, A number of years ago, a buddy of mine asked me to go and do his junior high. He's a a junior high youth pastor, and so he asked me to go do his camp for him. And I'm out in New Braunfels, and so I had an entire group of about 80 junior hires with me, and I had a whole cabin to myself all 12 year old, 11, 12 year old boys in this cabin, probably about 15 of us and then me. And so uh, there's a lot of interesting things that took place. I remember coming in to the cabin one evening and I came in there and uh, as soon as I opened up the door, like all these guys, there's about eight of them huddled around the refrigerator and the freezer right there. And they immediately like shut the door and they're like, you know, what's, you know, kind of just like looking around and, and I was like, hey, what's up guys? What you up to? What you, what you doing back there? And they're like, oh, nothing, just hanging, talking, you know, doing a few things. And I was like, you're not really talking or anything. I was like, what? What'd you put in that freezer right there? They're like, oh, nothing. We're just nothing, just hanging out, just talking and stuff. I was like, so I go over there, and of course they're like standing right in front of the freezer. And what? You just, you know, go the other way. And I open up the freezer, and there's ice cube trays full of water and insects in every single ice cube tray. Like they gathered all these insects, and they're freezing grasshoppers so that they can put it in the water of the girls' cabin next door. I, like, that's what they're trying to do. And I'm sitting sort there of going, that's brilliant. I'm very, very impressed with that. It's like, I'm learning things from you every single day. And of course, like, that's just the beginning of the weekend, right? Like, we try to go to bed. And as a rookie, kind of a, a junior high counselor at that time, I, I'm pumped that it's midnight and they're finally going to sleep. And so they're all pretty much in one room and I've got the special counselor room right next door. And all of a sudden, just I hear, I hear a can open up. It's the like it's like 1 o'clock, 12, 12.30, somewhere around there. And the can opens it up. I'm like, those kids brought beer to this retreat. Are you kidding me? And I go in there and it's worse than beer, y'all. I'm like, the kids brought a 12-pack of Mountain Dew. Like I, at midnight, 12.30 in the morning. I mean, they, these kids brought their own 12-pack of Mountain Dew. They're cracking it open and passing around Mountain Dews in this cabin. And I was like, you've got to be kidding me. We're not going to get any sleep at all. A couple hours later, they finally settled down. And, and I'm back in my room and I'm, I'm finally sound asleep. All of a sudden, about 11 of the 12, they're in the other room. They come running in and jump on my bed. They're like, Aaron, Aaron, wake up, wake up, wake up. And then I smell what happened. Evan happened. And Evan let off an axe bomb in that room over there. Do you guys know what an axe bomb is? The body spray that like 12 year olds put an entire can on it before school every morning, right? The kid lit a fuse and blew up the axe the ax body spray there. And the entire room was just filled with uh, 12-year-old scent. And so um, just absolutely crazy. It's fun for me to kind of think about what Jesus may have been like at 12 years old, right? This is just a fun age. They get in all kinds of trouble. I can't imagine Jesus doing some of those things. Nevertheless, passage we're going to look at today, uh, he's getting in a little bit of trouble. And so let's pick it up here. Chapter 2, verse 39. Um, here's what it says. Now, when Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, uh, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth, meaning uh, they immediately jumped from infant stages of Jesus to 12-year-old Jesus. And so, we're going to see that here in just a minute. It says, the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was on him. Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom. Now, after the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it, thinking he was in their company they traveled on for a day. Now, parents, real quick, how long is it going to take you before you figure out you're missing a kid, right? Like, if it's one of your favorites and they're like two, you're probably going to figure it out in like 30 seconds. By the time they get to 12, it's an entire day, right? But uh, I think that's kind of, kind of what you're looking at here a little bit. I mean, they go an entire day, and honestly, the scene is not as irresponsible as it sounds immediately. Uh, they're caravanning with family and friends, and everybody's going back together. They just assume, hey, Jesus is somewhere in this crowd, and it's just how it always works out. Nevertheless, they, they lose their kid. About a day into it, they're kind of going, gummit, we've got to go all the way back there and go try to find this kid. And so uh, it says that they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they didn't find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. And after three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them, and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me? He asked. Didn't you know that I had to be in my father's house? But they didn't understand what he was saying to them. Then he went down to Nazareth with them, and he was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart, and Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Church, do we have any people pleasers in the room today? Like you kind of love the favor of man, and you also kind of like the favor of God at the exact same time? Those two things don't typically go hand in hand, yet everything that Jesus did in this passage was effective at winning him favor with God and man. The question I want to start with today, I want to throw this at you, is, is how do you think about using the power that's been so graciously given to you? Here's Jesus, the fullness of deity dwells in him. Effective and winning favor with God and man. How in the world do you and I think about using the power which has graciously been given to you? And make no mistake, church, like we've all got it. It doesn't matter where you're coming from. You may not think of yourself as a power broker in business or socially or politically or something like that. But we've all got power in different realms and at different times. It may be a title that you hold at your work. And it may be a job uh, description or something like that. It may be a last name that you have that carries a lot of authority and power. It may be a job description where God's given you a lot of leadership and influence in your office or something like that. Maybe dozens and dozens of people. It may be just a few people. It may be this that you started a brand new job and you're trying to lead from the bottom and lead up right there. It may be a role that you play at home and you've got power and authority over your children. It may be a personality type that you have that gives you power over natural kind of influential power over friends or a spouse or your coworkers just through your own personality. It may be a socioeconomic class that you live in right now, which gives you more power or opportunity or choices than a lot of other people have. It may be um, a racial majority that you were born into, either nationally or a neighborhood in which you're living in over here, which gives you power and influence in ways that other people may not necessarily have. Church, to one degree or another we've all got power like it may just be a momentary thing that you have where you're chewing out a customer service rep from ikea because they messed up your order and in that moment you're in the right they're in the wrong and in that moment in that conversation you're in a place of power at that time church like how do you think about using the power that's been graciously gifted to you by the almighty king of all kings the reality is i mean you look around and it's just not a given that it's always going to be used well right Like, it's just not a given that power is always going to be used. All you got to do is turn on the news and read the headlines and and know that the power is often abused. You're going to read about the the Catholic priests abusing 1,000 children in Pennsylvania. You're going to read about the famous evangelical megachurch pastor who was ousted from his position for sexually assaulting vulnerable women underneath his care. I mean, you're going to read about the other megachurch evangelical pastor who was fired from his position for bullying and actually abusing his own staff. And you're going to read about Me Too and Church Too, and you're going to get on Twitter and and, and read the feeds of our leaders and things like that. And and the church, how in the world do you think about using the power that's been graciously gifted unto you? Because what Jesus is going to show us, even as a 12-year-old boy at this point in time, is that there is a way to divest of your power that still gives you favor with God and influence with man at the exact same time. It's exactly what we're going to see here in Jesus. In Jesus, is the fullness of divinity. It's the the fullness of power. It's absolute power. Yet at the exact same time, it's voluntary submission, working side by side all the time together. I mean, Paul's going to save Jesus of this in Colossians 1.15. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Church, this is who Jesus is. Even as a 12-year-old boy, this is who he is. That in him, all things were created. He's before all things, and in him, all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the very church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. Chapter 2, he's going to say, in Christ, all the fullness of deity lives, and that he is the head over over every power and authority. Church, like that's who Jesus is, fully divine, co-equal with the Father and the Holy Spirit, but he does not come uh, throwing his weight around. We're gonna see this in 46. He's in the temple and he's sitting with the teachers and he's listening to them and he's asking them questions. Church, what in the world does the God of the universe have to, to learn from a teacher in the temple? Like what questions is he asking at this time? I mean, can you imagine their retirement party and they're kind of going, yeah, you remember that time like the son of God was in our class? Like, like what, what is that whole discourse like? And just, he just says that he's sitting with them. And he's, he's listening to teachers and he's asking them questions. Verse 51, when it's time to go home, he's clearly he kind of freaked his parents out. And he says, he goes down to Nazareth and he was obedient to them again. Church, like how difficult is it to submit to parents that you had a hand in creating? Like, I mean, how difficult is it to submit to people? You have more wisdom. You have more knowledge. You have more experience. You're older than them. I mean, Caleb has a tough time submitting to me and the kid can't tie his shoes, Right, like we're in a car and he's telling me where to drive and how to go and how to do things right. And he thinks that I'm always wrong. And, and like Jesus is actually that four-year-old kid that has the right answers. Like he's the one saying, dad, no, no, no. Left on 635, right on 75, exit park, take a right. Then you'll be around there. Like that's the best park he's like, And he knows what he's talking about. But church, my point is like, it's just not how Jesus used his power and authority. Like Jesus comes in and his parents say, hey buddy, it's time to go. And he's saying, okay, uh, let's go. He goes, back to, he goes back and he humbly obeys. The teachers are teaching, and he's sitting there listening, and he's not challenging their authority. He's asking them questions. Church, it's exactly what Paul talks about in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, when he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Church, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others as more important than yourself. Why? Because, verse 5, in doing so, you're going to have the exact same mentality as Jesus did. Verse 6, who being in the very nature of God, didn't consider equality with God as something to be grasped or used for his own advantage. Verse 7, rather, he made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death upon a cross. Church, like, that's what submission is. That's Jesus in the fullness of his power, in the fullness of divinity, choosing to empty himself for the good of us all. If I could just define it a little bit more clearly, like biblical submission is a voluntary act of yielding to the will or authority of another person. Like That's all it is. It's a, it's a voluntary act. It is a, it is a conscious decision to lower yourself at any given moment for the long-term good of those around you. In other words, biblically, it's not something that you can force on anyone else. Right, when we're talking about biblical submission, we're not talking about UFC. You know what I'm talking about? Like back when I was a UFC fighter, like my goal was to (laughs) my goal was to was to beat someone so bad that just before they passed out and died, like they, they beat that mat and they submitted themselves to my power and authority. Right? Like we're not at war with people. We get that, right? Like we're not at war with people. Our goal is not to force them to a place where they fly the white flag and, and, and they have no other option but to submit. It's just not what we're talking about. We're talking about a voluntary act of the will coming from a place of strength to yield your will for the good of another person. And here it is, church, when that happens... Not only is it the definition of a Christ-like leader, because it's exactly what we see in the example of Jesus all throughout his life and ministry, and not only does it give you favor with God, but it also gives you favor with man, because that is the thing which carries the ability to produce peace and righteousness like nothing else can. We we see this in James chapter 3. I was talking with Kristen Poole this past week in the women's ministry. I think you guys dove into this passage, and I think it's a perfect uh, place for this. But James chapter 3, verse 13, check this out. He says, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, don't boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom, quotes, does not come down from heaven, but it's earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder in every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is, first of all, pure. Then it's peace-loving then considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. In other words, church, like, submission is not weakness. Submission is wisdom. We get, like, submission is not weak, submission is wise. And the reason it is because at verse 18, peacemakers who sow in peace, they reap a harvest of righteousness, Peacemakers who sow in peace, they reap a harvest of righteousness. So there's two kinds of wisdom here. One is a kind of wisdom that's worldly, unspiritual, and demonic, right? That one's gonna be rooted in envy and selfish ambition, and the result is gonna be disorder and evil, every evil thing. Church, can you think of any examples that are going on in culture that that's actually true today? Like, it's, it's, the, it's the leader who uses his power to crush and oppress the weak. It's the boss who only knows how to motivate through fear and intimidation. Like it's the celebrity who thinks that they're entitled to a few more pleasures than everyone else, regardless if you're consenting or not. Like it's the husband who thinks that their spouse exists for their joy and their pleasure alone. Like it's the person who believes that the end always justifies The means. And what James is saying, church, is that that kind of wisdom is not only worldly, but it's unspiritual and it's flat out demonic. So you may see a few goals come about, but evil's going to flourish and people will be crushed all along the way. On the other hand, James says there's another kind of wisdom that's going to come from heaven. That kind of wisdom has a goal to see people won and not just wiped out. Like that kind of wisdom comes from a place of purity, he says, and so that power works together with submission and mercy and impartiality, and the result of that leadership is a harvest that's full of righteousness. Church, like that's the reason you've been given power. Like that's the reason you've been given influence in whatever your realm may be, in whatever moment that may be. That is the reason you've been given what you've been given. Church, it's never been about you. It's never been about making more money. It's never been about elevating your name. It's never been about getting a platform or control or authority over people. It has always been about the harvest of righteousness. It's always been about people, like the people that you've been called to care for and shepherd and steward, your family, your children, your friends, your coworkers, your spouse. It's the kid that's getting pl- picked on at the playground. Like it's the family that's struggling to make ends meet. It's the, it's the people that are being overlooked. It's the rookie at work that's trying to make their way and figure everything out. Church, like they are the goal of the entire thing. Church, like he, Jesus wants people won. He doesn't want them wiped out. The goal is a harvest of righteousness. And if that's the goal, then humility and voluntary submission has to be our way. Paul's gonna say the same thing to his dis- young disciple Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 23. Don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments. Don't have anything to do with Facebook banter that's foolish and stupid and it's going to get you nowhere. Don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments. Why? Because you know that they only produce quarrels. They don't actually bring about repentance a lot of times. And the Lord's servant, here it is, must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Opponents must be gently instructed, The people you're trying to convert, the people you're trying to lead, the people that you're trying to defeat must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. Church, we actually believe this, right? Like we believe that it was the kindness of the God that led us to repentance, right? I love the way that J.D. Greer talks about this. He talks about um, there's two different ways to to influence someone to, to change. And He says it's kind of a lot, a lot like uh, getting a balloon to float. There's two ways to make a balloon float. Number 1 is you can blow it all up, you can tie off the end, and you can take a stick and you just keep beating it with the stick over and over and over again. It actually works. Right, that that balloon will float, it'll fly, but after a little while like that balloon's going to be worn out and eventually it's going to come tumbling down to the ground. The other way to make a balloon fly is to simply fill it with helium and It'll float all on its own. Church, every single time that we yield to someone else and we choose kindness rather than intimidation and we choose peace rather than revenge, like you are filling that person with helium and gaining favor not only with God, but with them too. It's why Jesus says, you've heard it said that you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I'm telling you, you should love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, church. Like he loves those people. He loves the people that you've been called to steward and shepherd and to engage with and to lead and all these different kinds of things. He loves those people and he wants to see them won and not just wiped out. Never forget the first time that this kind of began to make sense in me. My natural personality is to fight everything pretty much and um, to verbally go after things. It's just how it works out. uh, I was a freshman year of college and I went to go visit a friend over at Stephen F. Austin University and he was showing me around the campus, and we were walking out there, and it was one of these days that, you know, that Christian group that was out there, um, they had their signs, and they had their picketing things, and they had their protests going on, and I mean, they had the bullhorn, and they were screaming, and telling every different group over here who all was going to hell, and how fast they were going to get there, and things like that, and then, of course, the LGBT group, they come up, and they go and engage and they're just going back and forth, screaming and yelling all the kinds of things. There's another minority group that comes up there and they start screaming and yelling and engaging, and everybody's getting all riled up. And and of course I'm a young freshman and I start to engage with one of these hateful people over here and just start talking with them. And at the end of the day, we kind of get back, and you know what's crazy about the entire thing? It's like no one converted that day. No one converted. I mean, a lot of people got on a high horse and yelled and screamed, and like, no one was actually converted to the other person's side. I mean, a number of years later, I think I've shared this one with you before, but like, God smacked me in the face and said, Aaron, like, there's a better way than ripping people apart with your words. Like, there's a better way than, than screaming and yelling and intimidation and fear and things of that nature. It was the time, probably about six or seven years ago, that all the Chick-fil-A protests were coming out, and remember this one, uh, they came up with a stance on marriage and of course the LGBT community was out there and they were protesting heavily one day and everybody else is kind of rising up saying, no, we want to come to the support of Chick-fil-A. And we went out there, I was out with a buddy just craving those waffle fries and um, we drove out there. We're like, what is happening today? We're like, oh yeah, we forget what's happening. And so literally the line was just down the street, was just down the street. And we get closer and we see this group and they've got the, the signs and the, and the megaphones and all these things. And there's another Christian group that's kind of over there screaming back at them about why they're right and all these different kinds of things. And and we just it was just a sobering moment to kind of just see all this disruption that's going on in the grass there at Chick-fil-A. And we go in and get our meal and come back out. And I was kind of wrestling with, okay, do we engage? Do we leave it alone? Do we just, is this our battle or not? One of those kinds of things. And Finally, I just felt prompted to go out there and to engage in one way or another. So I go over to the LGBT group and I bring the f- waffle fries and stuff. And, and I said, hey, I'd, I'd love to sit and just understand a little bit more of where you're coming from. Do you mind? They're like, No, we'd love to tell you where we're coming from. And I sit down on the grass and there's a three people at first and they just start going off and telling me everything that they're upset about. And about six or seven people come around and they're talking and, and explaining. And I'm just sitting there listening with my buddy and we're just hearing them out. And it goes on and on and on, probably 10, 15 minutes or so. And finally, the, they get done kind of ranting and stuff. And I, and I finally can just kind of just sit there and just say, I'm so sorry for what you've been through. And I'm sorry that that's, that that's been your experience because that is, it could not be more contrary to what the gospel actually teaches us. Do you mind if I share with you what the gospel of Jesus Christ actually has to say? And No, we love that. And we sat down on grass everybody's standing and screaming around us, and there's about seven or eight of us sitting on grass, and we've got a Bible open, and they're just reading different things, nation of sin, and we just start explaining these different kinds of things, and not one of them were converted that day, but we sat there, and we just prayed for a few that wanted to stick around. Church, what I'm saying here is that if, if you want to see a harvest of righteousness, you want to see a harvest of righteousness, like Jesus is showing us a better way. Like, if that's your goal, if your goal is that people will be one and not just wiped out, then he's showing you a completely different way than anything else you're going to see in the world church. Like, if your goal is a harvest of righteousness, even in your marriage and in your own home, like, he's showing you a brand new way. It's why he tells us in Ephesians 5, 21, Husbands and wives, submit to one another out of reverence for the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, church, there's a mutual yielding that has to take place for both people in a marriage to flourish. Wives, to your own husbands, as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives, submit to your husbands and everything. And husbands, like, before you stop reading right there, and you think that that's all that it has to say, keep going here. Because here's what it actually says. Husbands, love your wives. Love your wives. And he's not just saying just have an emotional feeling towards them. This isn't just this hypothetical thing, just, hey, I I know that you feel something to this other woman in this relationship. He's saying, love them like a verb. Do it, do it every single day. Don't just say it one time on that altar before God and your friends so long ago, but every single day, lay down your life for your wife and actively love them. Every single day, give yourself fully. How? As Christ loved the church, and he yielded up his life, and he gave it up for her, that she would flourish. That's how that's, that is the description of what ever headship looks like in this passage, church. Like that's what's been given unto you, church. That is the example. It is always Jesus. It is never your high school football coach. It is never the captain in the army that you looked up to in the in the in the on TV or or maybe at some point in your past. Like the example is always Jesus. And it's not even Jesus on his throne, it's Jesus on the cross. It's not Jesus coming back in the fullness of glory, reigning on his white horse. It's Jesus suffering and willingly giving up his life for the sake and glory of the church. It's Jesus who, who, who demonstrates his own love for us in this while we were still sinners, Christ came and he died for us. It's Jesus when he said, the greatest among you will be your servant and whoever exalts himself shall be humbled and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. It's Jesus when he got on his hands and his knees and he chose to wash his disciples' feet. It's Jesus when he saw the fullness of our sin and he still came to earth and he took on flesh in the form of a child to a family of no name and he lived the life we could not live and he saw the depth of our sin, the worst that we had to offer, and he still went to the cross anyway. Church, that is the example that has been given to you. It's never domination or arrogance or this trump card that you get to play anytime you want to get your own way. Headship is this responsibility to yield your life every single day in such a way that sees your wife flourish? Can I just tell you how many women we talk to in our position that are dying for their husbands to get this? Some of you are saying a thousand amens right now. Like I wish, I wish I wasn't about to go into story time and I could just be pulling from dozens and dozens and dozens of personal examples here. Like, it's a friend who came to us years ago and tells us that uh, she feels like a prisoner in her own, own home because she's not even allowed to disagree with her husband. It's the wife of the husband I talked to that, that asked, how long do I need to engage in this, in this um, misunderstanding? Or how long do I need to enge- engage in this argument before I can finally make her submit to me? It's the woman who wasn't sleeping because her husband made her get a third job working throughout the night, which is fantastic so they could pay for his master's school and stuff like that but problem is he didn't have one job and when she would take off her work at night all the boys would come over they play xbox throughout the night she just needed to submit and just just do what he says it's the woman who gave up all of her friends because their encouragement made her less passive at home it's the friend who is told to submit to all kinds of horrific and painful sexual acts with her husband while they were watching pornography together. And then it's the exact same woman who took her problems to her elders, crying out for help, and was told that she needed to submit a little bit better. Church, what did James just say about this? He says that that kind of wisdom is rooted in selfish ambition. It's not only worldly, it's unspiritual and it's flat-out demonic. It's not the picture that Jesus gives us. I submit to one another out of reverence for Jesus Christ. Wives to your own husbands. Husbands, lay down your life. Love your wife. Give fully of your life. Yield your life to your own wife for her good and for her flourishing. It's Matthew 20 when he says, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the son of man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Church, that's what this is. It's gotta be mutual for both people in this relationship to flourish. It's the responsibility of every man to serve their wife, to know and understand their wife, to love them and to see them and to to value them and to know how God's uniquely wired them and to value and to be able to see what's unique and beautiful about who she is and to bring it out for the edification of this body and for the glory of his name. And one of the questions that we get all the time, premarital counseling, singles ministry, a million different places, is like, how does this whole thing play out, right? Headship submission and all these different things it says, like, how does this play out? And of course, the question we get all the time is like, Aaron, I want to know, like, how does that play out in your marriage? Like, You don't have a, a usual marriage, right? And you're, like, yeah, you're right. We don't. And uh, we we're, we're two very similar people. We're both very strong. We're very We've got leadership, and we've got ministries and things of that nature, and everybody wants to know, like, how does this whole thing play out with you guys at home? Like, how are decisions made, right? Like, that's the most difficult thing in the world. But we were talking about it this past week, and the thing that kept coming to mind is it's kind of like going into a mall and opening up the door for one another. You know what I'm talking about? You go to the mall, and there's these layers of doors. And we get up to the mall, and I go up ahead of her, and I grab the door, and I open it up, and she just walks in. And then there's another layer of doors right there and she's ahead of me and she grabs that door and opens it up and and then I walk right in. Then we get to another layer of doors and and I go grab that door and I just open it up and say, babe, your turn. Let's go. Walk in. And she goes and she grabs that next door. It's your turn. Go. I mean, I'll never forget the first time we were confronted with this. We were newly wedged, just out of A&M. We Fell in love and connected over our mutual desire to serve the Lord in ministry. We had similar gifts and things of that nature. And we kind of come out of AM and we're going to Dallas and we both know that we're going to go to seminary. And we've got tons of undergrad debt. We have no jobs. And we're kind of going, How in the world are we going to pay for seminary? Like, how in the world are both of us going to do this thing? It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Fortunately, I had a lot of clarity about coming out. I felt like the Lord was leading me to go work in the real world for a few years before we did the seminary and ministry thing for the rest of my life. And so we didn't need to make an immediate decision on that. And so all we did was just, we just prayed and we said, Lord, bring us together, make us be one. And would you lead us to the right timing and to the right things that need to happen? About a year and a half, I'm enjoying my time in sales over at Sewell GMC. And, and her job was pretty good for the first year. And then it started to take, go south a little bit after that. And wasn't really flourishing there and we're having a little time alone and I have a conversation with my mom and we're my dad and I'm praying through some things and all of a sudden it becomes clear Aaron it's time for you to open up this door and it came one day and it was like babe I think that I think it's time for you to jump into seminary I think it's time for you to go God's providing for us through this job and and I've got a little bit more time left here why don't you go ahead and go and I came over there and I just opened up the door and say babe go run run and a couple years later like the time was the time was about to turn and, and she's praying through things and she's just saying, babe, it's it's time for it's time for me to open up this door for you. And she comes over and she just and, and she gets this job and God God starts providing and she's just working and working and working and, and she's the breadwinner for like the next four or five years of her life, like making the majority of the income in her family. And she's just saying, Let me open up this door and so that you can go and you can go to school and go do all these different kinds of things. And then a few years into that, like where it's towards the end of graduation and we're kind of looking at some things and God gives this vision to her and her friend Stephanie Giddens to create this ministry that's go, gonna go and reach all these young professional women who are walking away from the church in droves. And she's dealing with this burden, and she's out in this professional arena here and seeing all these women that used to be connected to the church and that have walked away and that are no longer connecting anymore, and, and it, God just gave her and Stephanie this burden for this ministry, and I had no idea how the whole thing was gonna work, but we we're prayerfully looking at this thing, we're praying, and we're saying, Lord, I've got no idea how this is gonna work, and I just, I, I just felt this whole thing, i just got open up the door and just say, yes, go, go, run. And I'm looking at this, and it's just saying, you know what, God's given her unique gifts, She's got leadership gifts, and she's got a voice, and she's got intelligence. She's got these different things and these passions. There's this calling over here, like, who am I I to stuff that? Like, open up the door, go, run, run. And then years later, it came time, like, it's graduation. We're out of that, and, and God's shifting us around from northwest, and we're kind of going, okay, Lord, what's next? And she comes down one day and just comes and says, Aaron, you know, regardless of what I want, I want you to know that Wherever it is that God has us go, I'm with you. I'm in. We're in this. as Team Armstrong. We're together. Whether that's here in Dallas or halfway around the world, no matter what that may be, I'm here and I'm in. And she just opened up that door and said, run. You're called to pastor. You're called to preach. You're called to these people. Run, run, run. It's all it is, church. It's the beauty of just mutual submission, just opening up the door one after another. Go run. I see these gifts in you. I see how God has uniquely wired you. I see these passions. I see what God wants to do in you for the glory of his name and the edification of this body. Go and would you just run? And if that means that I need to come home early and, and take care of dinner, I'm in. And if it means that I need to clean up, I'm in. And if it means that I'm spending more time with my own child, that's actually healthy. That's called parenting. And if it means that 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 is not exactly traditional, it means that I'm in. Because I see you and I see what God is doing in your life. And it's two people that are doing that. That are looking at each other saying, go, run, flourish. It's why God's brought us together in this relationship to be husband and wife, to build each other up for the glory of his name and for your edification, for your flourishing. Church, I wonder if there's a door that God is leading you to open up for the person you've been called to love and engage with for the rest of your life. Like, I just wonder, like, I wonder if any of you may be there and, and, and the Holy Spirit may be leading you to just say, you know what? Wherever you are, husband, wife, wherever you are, maybe I just need to open up this door and say, go, run, run. Because it's obedience to the Father, first and foremost. Husbands, you want to know how you're doing at home? Like, I'm always asking that question, right? It's a big question. It's like, am I even a good father? Am I a good husband? (laughs) Am I good at my job? Am I good at all these things? Like, that's the question we all ask, right? And it's not just husbands, it's wives too. How is your spouse doing? Are they flourishing or not? Like, you want to know, like, how are things going at home? How are you in your role? However you think about that role. Like, how are things going? Is your spouse flourishing? And wives, I'm gonna ask you the exact same question. Like, is your husband flourishing? I mean, is your husband flourishing or is he only getting disappointment and opposition from you? Like, are you guys coming together and at the end of the day, are you still remembering to connect and to have the conversations face-to-face, no, no TV, no iPhones, no whatever else? Are you connecting and are you pouring into one another? Do you make it a priority to invest in the other person? No matter how difficult it is at the end of the day, it's stressful, it's tiring, I've got things happening at work, but she's number one. He's number one. The kids are driving me nuts. Like I'm exhausted, I got throw up on me still. <laughs> right, Amen. I I, yeah. Are you making it a priority to give yourself fully to the other person? Do you, do you even know their love language? Do you guys remember love languages? Maybe I'm it. Gary. I think it was Gary Chapman, if I'm remembering right. Unfortunately, I didn't discover love languages until about a year into our marriage. And um, love language, basically the premise is that we receive affirmation and love differently, right? Not everybody receives the exact same thing. He essentially says, I think there's four or five of them, um, that there's, there's words of affirmation. Some people just need to hear that they're loved over and over and over again. They're affirmed. They're valued. Some people think, for some people, it's physical touch. For some people, it's acts of service. Um, Other people, it's gifts and, like, tangibly doing something for them. Like, do you know that? Have you become a student of your spouse? Like, do you even know what they do? Can you even describe what your husband does when you're talking with your neighbors on the street? And you're trying to, he does something. I don't know. Um, I haven't really paid attention. It's... Drives me nuts. (laughs) Yeah, some of yours are really weird jobs, but anyway. Church, are you spending money on dates anymore? Or did that stop when you said, I do? Like, don't you spend money on the things that are priority to you? Does your bank account reflect the priorities that are true in your life? Like, are you actually dating still? Trying, to? I mean, it could be McDonald's, right? and you say, babe, you get to supersize at this time, but we're gonna take this time and we're gonna talk and we're gonna connect and we're gonna dance in the middle of this fast food restaurant if that's the only thing we can afford. Are you sharpening each other in your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ? As iron sharpens iron, so one man, so one woman sharpens another. Spiritually, are you investing? Are are they spiritually flourishing? Are Are you praying together? Like, are you making sure that you're each in the Word of God, and are your conversations as you talk, are they are they moving forward in your relationship with the Lord? Are you actually taking responsibility to come and say, "Hey, look, God. The reason that God has put us together is is to say, you know what? I'm going to come alongside you and help you flourish spiritually." Husbands, do you listen to your wife? Like Like, when you're doing that, is it just you teaching, or is it just you kind of saying, "What do you see here?" Like, I promise you. Like, they're going to bring wisdom and beauty to this text in ways that you never saw it before. Parents, are your kids flourishing? And I want to be careful because as I say all these things, like, it's not only on you, right? I want to be clear here. This is not only your responsibility. Each of us individually have responsibility to flourish. You can oppose leadership. You can oppose initiation. You can oppose all kinds of things. But, but nevertheless, there's this responsibility here to invest, intentionally submit, give your life for the flourishing of your family, kids, or parents. Are you seeing your kids actually flourish? You know, the one question that I get from uh, students more than anything else, the one thing I hear from them, I wish my parents would listen to me. That's hard, right? Because they're kids. They don't really know as much as you do, right? Let me ask you, like, what would it look like If you came into the room and you stepped off your platform for a minute, you yielded to them and just said, look, I just want to understand better. Would you explain to me everything that you're thinking and feeling? Help me understand. I want to know everything about what's going on to know why you're cutting right now. Like, I want to know about the depression that you're feeling. Do we need to go to the doctor? Do we need to get, like, what's going on? I want to know why you're so sad. I want to know why you're engaging in promiscuity. I want to know why you're seeking out love in all these different ways. Like, just help me understand. I just want to understand you. Tell me about yourself. Tell me about yourself. I want to know you. Like, what would it look like? Do you think that God might bring healing to your family if a father or a mother stepped off their platform every now and then? And granted, like children, they have a responsibility to submit to their parents. They were in the first service, and I went off on that with them. But like, like there's absolutely that. But like, what would it look like if you stepped out and said, you know what? Taking off my dad hat, taking off mom hat, just tell me about you. What's, what's going on here? Bosses, leaders, singles, are you fostering an environment around you that leads to the flourishing of other people? The people that you've been called to lead in a professional realm, do you listen anymore? Do you value what they bring to the table? Or is it all about you and your ideas? And is it all about you and this incredible platform you fought so hard to preserve? Are you willing to say, you know what, I'm gonna divest of my power and I'm gonna let you take the stage. I'm gonna divest of this power and I'm gonna gonna let you shine. I'm gonna give you credit. That was your idea, well done, you're killing it. Like is that your leadership style? Are you willing to let them shine? Are you creating an environment around you that allows other people to flourish? Church, like what Jesus does here is just not normal, is it? It's just not normal. It's not what we see. Like normal is King Herod and having every single boy under two years old living in Bethlehem killed because they could be the next king of the Jews. Like normal is eliminating the competition and crushing the weak. And it's just not what we see Jesus do because his mission's a little bit different. He wants to see people won and not just wiped out. It's about a harvest of righteousness and not just being on top, crushing the opposition, and seeing people weep. So Jesus, from a place of power, chooses voluntary submission. And in doing so, he gains favor with God and favor with man. May that be true of us. May that be our way. I'm going to invite you to pray with me.